thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. LeadSA.co.za We like helping people who've helped themselves. So do our listeners. Entrepreneurs SA on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with FNB. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very good, thanks. And yourself? I'm very well, thank you. I have a question from my colleague, John Robbie. Following that volcano in ice in Iceland, a lot of questions were asked about climate change, that all the work that we're doing to mitigate the effects of, of, of climate change and to curb carbon emissions, all of that is reversed by the impact of one volcano. So what is the point of all of us uh, joining this fight uh, and, and trying to reduce our carbon fr- footprint when a volcano can just undo all of that? Is there any truth to that? Um, I think I know what they're getting at. Um, when you look at what we produce in terms of greenhouse gas, it's about 30 to 37 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year that man is, is the man-made contribution. So that's a lot of greenhouse gases, and it's far more than any volcano does around the world. But what volcanoes do pump out is a lot of sulphur. And when the sulphur goes up into the atmosphere, it produces sulphur dioxide, SO2 and other sulfates, SO4s. And these sulfur particles in the atmosphere are reflective. They behave like little tiny mirrors that beam sunlight back into space. So if you look at the effect that a volcano can have, yes, it does put a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, still less than we do, but it also puts a lot of SO2, sulfur salts, into the atmosphere, which act like mini-mirrors. They help to therefore cool down the Earth because they're reflecting the incoming solar radiation that warms us up back into space. So there's therefore what's called an offset. So the volcano puts some gases out but also at the same time cools us down and therefore masks the global warming effect of the the man-made warming as well as its own warming. And in fact, shipping is in the same situation around the world. Shipping contributes about 3% of the world's global warming um, output Mm -hmm. and because ship fuels are very sulfur rich in fact the if the output of the boat's exhaust is masked by the sulfur for exactly the same reason so shipping whilst being bad for the uh, environment is hiding its own effect it's a bit like sweeping the co2 under the carpet um, because what it's doing is temporarily reducing the time that there is a warming signal. The difference is that the sulphur remains in the atmosphere for much less time than the CO2. So we're going to see CO2 causing warming for several hundred years, but the sulphur only has an effect in the short term, for tens of years. Mm. So at the moment we're seeing a temporary 
sweeping under the carpet of the CO2. So volcanoes can have a long-term temperature reduction effect because of their sulphur, but they're still going to contribute a net warming effect in the long term because of the CO2. Mm-hmm. So we should continue all our fights against uh, global warming, in other words, not abandon There's, there's no simple solution. Um, we have to try to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that we produce, and the way to do that is to look at new energy sources which are going to be carbon neutral, um, because the vast majority of the CO2 that we pump out goes for heating people's homes and domestic use, and that means that about 40% of the CO2 that we each put out is, is just that, air conditioning and so on. And the rest is then things like industry and also livestock, keeping cows very, very carbon hungry mm-hmm. because they belch and fart out lots and lots of CO2 mm-hmm. and methane. And there's probably about three times the mass of cows on Earth as there are people because we mm-hmm. keep a, we each person who eats meat eats about their own weight in meat every single year. <gasps> And if you work out that there's at least three years' worth of cow supply, because we have cows that are just being born, cows that are getting fat, cows that are getting ready to go to the butcher, that's about three-year supply chain. And therefore, there must be about three times the average weight of meat-eaters of cows on the earth. Therefore, there's at least three times as much of us in terms of putting out of CO2. And cows also produce lots of this methane, which is much worse for the greenhouse effect than CO2 is itself. And therefore cows contribute probably about 20% of the man-made or anthropogenic CO2 emissions. So mm-hmm. uh, trying to find ways to make cows belch and fart less would be good. <laughs> but maybe also some people have suggested <laughs> a bit more vegetarianism might be a good idea. Paul McCartney tried to create meat-free Mondays mm-hmm. um, or is encouraging people to go for meat-free Monday. Um, he may have a global warming favouring f- effect. Mm-hmm. All right. We're getting a lot of questions, Chris, about uh, the Chilean miners. How did they, su- they survive for 69 days underground? And how did the experts know where to drill specifically? Um, any, any thoughts on any uh, of that? Uh, obviously, I haven't seen the bottom line reports as to exactly what went on. And I, I suspect the company, because this is going to be a legal matter, uh, are going to be quite guarded in what they're going to release. Um, but the men were known to be in the mine because miners obviously clock in and clock out. Mines have very well-organized systems for knowing who is underground for precisely this reason. They also knew which sector of the mine the men were working in, and they knew where the roof had come down. So they knew which bits of the mine had been isolated from the main escape shafts. So they would have had a fair idea as to where these people were. I think that limited communication was established to them via a tube that was fed through the blockage. So they knew that there were people there, they knew there were people alive in there. They could also hear these people moving around, because vibrations travel quite well through tough, rigid surfaces like stone. Uh, And so they knew that these people were there, and then they had to work out, based on a map of the mine, you extrapolate from a map of the mine to where on the surface would we have to go from and in what direction in order to get down into this sector of the mine, Mm. downstream or or upstream, depending on which way you look at it, of where the roof has come down, and, and then work out where the best approach is going to be to get the most stable shaft down. And it's been quite good for the mine, too, as well, because on the way down, they've discovered a whole bunch of of deposits they didn't know that they had. Uh, So it looks like they're going to reopen different bits of the mine in order to extract those precious metals they found. Okay. And, uh, Chris, tell us about this new vaccine designed to boost uh, immunity against TB in adults. Well, this is very important because TB, many people don't realise necessarily the impact because HIV 
is very, very well understood as a major cause of death and disease in humans. Millions of people every year um, are getting infected, and there are millions of people dying every year of HIV, but TB is equally bad. We estimate that maybe a quarter of the world's population is infected with TB, which is a huge number. There's at least a billion people, and there may be as many as two billion people, three billion people in the world who have got it. And moreover, it's also becoming increasingly resistant to antibiotics, especially in the third world, where people may have only enough money to buy a small number of drugs for a short period of time, which they take for a while. They then feel better, but because the bug takes at least six months of intensive therapy to get, get rid of, when these people stop taking these antibiotics after maybe a week or two, they're feeling a bit better, but at the same time they've still got bacteria lurking in them. So the bugs then come back, but by now they've also been exposed to these antibiotics. And over time the bugs become resistant, and that's why we've now got multi-drug resistant TB. Now, you could argue, well, we've got the BCG vaccination, so what's the problem? The problem is that although this is quite good for children, if given at a young age, BCG stops children getting disseminated tuberculosis, and it also stops another nasty manifestation of TB called TB meningitis, where the bacteria get into the meninges around the brain and they cause a meningitis syndrome, which is very, very, very often fatal. That's very well protected and prevented by BCG. The problem is that as you get older, the effect of that vaccine wears off and you can't just give another dose of it because it's actually not effective. So you end up with a pool of adults who are actually vulnerable to TB infection again. So researchers are actively looking for a new way to stimulate better immunity against TB. And one way to do that is to generate what's called a subunit or recombinant vaccine. And that's what's been published this week by a group of researchers in Seattle. This is a guy called Steve Reed and his colleagues at the Infectious Disease Research Center um, over in Washington, America. And what they have published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week is a vaccine where they go into the genome of TB, the genetic material, and they've found four genes that we know are linked to either the virulence, how nasty TB is, things that it uses to make us sick, and also genes for latency, in other words, how the bug persists in the body. They've taken those four genes and they've linked them all together to make it what's called a fusion gene. And what this means is that you can insert that gene into another bacterium, which will make one big giant protein, the product of all four of those genes, which shows the body, if injected into it, what those things look like. And they've then made this protein in E. coli, combined it with an, what's called an adjuvant, which stimulates the immune system. And they've done tests on mice and guinea pigs and their monkeys with this mm. uh, new vaccine. They call it ID93. And what they were able to demonstrate in guinea pigs is that if you infect guinea pigs with TB, they get sick and die. If you give guinea pigs a dose of the BCG vaccination first wait a little while, then infect them with TB, two-thirds of them get sick and die. If you give a bunch of guinea pigs the BCG, wait a little while, then give them this new ID93 vaccine, they all survive. Mm. And the tests on monkeys show that the monkeys get a very good immune response. They haven't challenged them with TB yet, but they get a very good immune response to TB, suggesting that this would work very effectively and safely in humans. So they're now pushing forward saying we want a phase one clinical trial here because this is such a serious disease and we need an answer and we need one soon. All right, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702 right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 
All right, we're taking your calls for the Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567, Mel in Clement, hi. Hello, Chris. Chris, I've got a question about race. Um, geneticists like Craig Fenter tell us there's no such thing as a race gene. And social scientists tell us that uh, race is a social and historical construct. So my question is, does race exist as an objective fact? Mm, that's very interesting. Hello, Mel. Um, yes, I, I think you'd argue that it does, because um, when we were in South Africa last year, with um, we were there for the SciFest in Grahamstown, uh, there was a, an anthropologist called Nina Jablonski who came over from Penn State University over in the States. And she was giving a talk on precisely this issue and the big question, why are some people black and why are some people white? And the really interesting thing that she told me that I didn't know before was that if you wind back the clock and find the ancestor that humans shared with our closest relatives, the things like chimpanzees and bonobos, that ancestor would have been black-skinned. But chimpanzees have pale skin and our, under their fur, and obviously half of the humans, the people who live in the north have white skin, the people who live around equatorial Africa are black-skinned. So at some stage, we know that the early humans evolved in Africa and were therefore almost certainly black-skinned. Therefore, our ancestors had to evolve first to be black and then evolve again to be white when they left Africa. And the reason for that is that if you live where it's very, very sunny, then the ultraviolet rays in the sunlight will damage folic acid in the body because UV degrades folate, and you need folic acid to develop the nervous system. So if you don't have enough folate, then women can get, when they're pregnant, can mm -hmm. have babies that develop spina bifida or neural tube defects. So, in other words, if you don't have enough folic acid, you have spina bifida, and this will be disadvantageous, and therefore you're less likely to survive and have more children. And therefore it's advantageous in sunny places to have dark skin but once you're dark skinned and you migrate to a very unsunny place mm -hmm. like britain uh, <laughs> where there's about three minutes of sunlight a year um now there's no problem with the folic acid because even on a sunny day a white skinned person has enough folic acid because there's too little sun but a dark skinned person now doesn't have enough sunlight coming in in their skin to make vitamin d because vitamin D is made by the action of ultraviolet on cholesterol in the skin, producing cholecalciferol, which then gets fully further metabolized in the body to make dihydroxycholecalciferol, which is vitamin D. So, therefore, there's a selective pressure for dark-skinned people to become light-skinned mm -hmm. where there isn't much sun, which is why people who live up north, where I do, are pasty. Um, so I'd argue, given that we've, we now can see how humans migrated around the earth, and we can see that people have these traits, I would argue that the combination of genes that go with geographies, and, and also therefore go with races, would argue that there are race genes, because there are different collections of genes that make people look different, and have different statures, and different abilities, and different metabolic rates in different parts of the world, driven by the selection that occurred hundreds of thousands of years ago, in order to give us the best advantages for the environment in which we lived. So that would be my argument. I, I, think, I think you could say that there is definitely genetics underlying race because the reason we all look the way we do is because of our genes. Okay, thank you very much, Mel. Very interesting question indeed. Uh, is, it, is it Hazer in Moraleta Park? It's Heiser. Heiser, I beg your pardon. Welcome. No problem. Hi. Um, yes, Chris, I've got a question for you. Um, uh, I'm a person who's got, uh, well, I'm kind of mixed dominance regarding my hands, um, not quite ambidextrous. 
I'd just like to know, what is the implication for, for brain usage or something like memory? Um, yes, uh, I would really like to know your answer on that. Mm. Oh, Heiser, um, you know, the old gag is I'd give my right arm to be ambidextrous. <laughs> um, the answer is I asked Chris McManus this. Chris McManus is the Professor of Medical Education and Psychology at University College London. He published a book around the world about six or seven years ago called Right Hand, Left Hand. It actually won the Aventis Book Prize. I'd say it's one of the best science books that I've ever read. He looks at the very question of handedness in that book, not just of people, but also of molecules and atoms and, and, the, and the universe, actually. But the chapters on human handedness are absolutely fantastic. So if you can get a copy of Right Hand, Left Hand, you'll find this very interesting. Because I interviewed him, and I said to him, what about people who say what you do? That, that they don't think that they favour one particular hand over another. They tend to write with one hand, but then they can also do lots of good things with the other hand. Does ambidexterity really exist as a psychological and as a neurological manifestation? And his answer was, humans are very good at learning to do things. If someone has a problem with, say, the right side of their body that they used to write with, then they'll pick up a pen and learn to write with their left hand. And in other words, we're very good at training ourselves to do new things. And therefore, there will always be probably a side preference to us Mm -hmm. but we will also have the ability to use the other side to do things, giving us the impression that we're co-dominant. In fact, if you look in the brain, you will find that the about 90% of people have language and, uh, well, about 90% of people are right-handed. That means that the dominant hemisphere in them is usually on the left side of the brain, and between 60 and 80% of those people will have a dominant left hemisphere because one side of the brain controls the opposite side of the body and it also seems to co-localize with language so the the part of the brain that encodes and decodes language is also on the same side of the brain as your handedness is controlled by it seems to go along with cerebral dominance and if you do tests on people who who say this you will still find despite them saying i'm ambidextrous you'll still find that one side of the brain has language mm. and is therefore dominant to the other so i think probably that what you've got is very good motor skills um and it's it's almost certain that you are normal <laughs> but uh you still you, you have actually become quite well trained at just using both hands rather than just favouring one. That would be Chris McManus's argument, but do try and get the book, because if you, if you can pick up a copy, I think you'll, you'll really like reading it. All right, thank you very much. And uh, Bito in Mamilodi, your question, please. Hi, Rudy, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Bito. I'm okay. Hi, Chris. Hello. Uh, Chris, I have a question for you. Uh, I was reading on the internet about color electronic native ways and uh, the, the, the usefulness of the technology. So I just wanted to know if, uh, because they mentioned there that it can be used for weaponry, can be used to generate energy and for medicine as well. I just wanted to, to know if it really does exist and how does it work and why are we not using it? Color electromagnetic technology. Okay. Yes, for, for generating energy, maybe electricity in South Africa and other countries. All right. Could you just say the term again? Because I'm not sure I picked it up properly. Peter, are you saying color as in C O L O U R or C A L A R? Sorry, it's S E A L A R. It's color electromagnetic waves. Longitudinal waves in as compared to transverse waves that we use for other things. Scala as in S C. Scala, yeah. Scala. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take a rain check on this new technology because I haven't come across the term. Can I check it out and maybe come back to you next week because I I would be making up an answer. I don't know the answer. I haven't heard of this one. Okay. Lee I've Cra written down the name, so I will go and check it out for you. Sorry about that. We'd be most grateful, Chris. Lee in Craig Hall Park. Hi, Chris. Um, I would just like your explanation on crop circles, if that's possible, and I'll listen on the radio. Crop circles. Hello, Lee. Uh, the answer is nefarious humans, in two words. Uh, people have uh, have shown that, in fact, this is a profession, and people do this in order to create art. Um, <laughs> people have tried to find good physical explanations for why this should happen and the way it happens, and they can't. And the only explanation is that people are going out with bits of string ta attached to tent pegs, which they put in one place, and then they tie the other end of the bit of string along a piece of wood, which they then, or a plank, which they then use to flatten down the crops, going round in a circle around their tent peg. And this makes all the, all the corn fall in one direction, so you get this nice circle. And they do clever things like use chairs, they take two chairs with them and they plonk the chair down, stand on the chair, lift mm. the other chair up and move it another metre further, jump from one chair to the next, pick the other one up, put it in front. And so they never leave any footprints in and out of the fields. And uh, there are all these wonderful studies of, um, of following these people who do this to show how they do it. So I think the answer is it's not aliens but nefarious humans. I mean, the, the point that I heard one fairly famous scientist make was that if, if, if aliens could get all the way to Earth, if they had the technology to cross space and time to get to Earth, why would they bother fiddling around making circles in crops um, would, surely they've got the technology to do that already from remote distances rather than have to come all the way here to flatten things down. And, and why would they only land in a crop field? They must have very strange space, spaceships if they'll only land in a crop field. Nefarious humans. Uh, Chris, just very quickly before I let you go, the comet that wasn't, what's that about? Well, back in January of this year, there was a, a system or a, an Earth scanning, robotic scan called LINEAR, which stands for Lincoln Near Earth Asteroid Research Study. And this was scanning the sky, just looking for interesting things. And it spotted this thing that looked like a comet. And researchers thought, oh, this is exciting. We've found a whole new comet. But when they actually started looking more closely, it didn't quite hang together because most comets have very big orbits that take them way out into deep space and then they may come back in close to the Earth for a while and then go back out again. This comet appeared to be orbiting in the asteroid belt. Furthermore, although it had a very long tail, there was a 200,000 kilometre long tail on this thing, there was no centre, no, no nucleus to it, which is obviously unusual. So what two researchers, uh, two different groups of researchers have published this week in the journal Nature, one of them is David Jewett, who's at uh, University of College, at University um, of California, Los Angeles, and also Colin Snodgrass, who's at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research um, over in Germany. What those two groups have done is to look at this problem in two different ways. David Jewett and his colleagues looked at this object with the Hubble Space Telescope, whilst um, Colin Snodgrass used a telescope aboard the Rosetta probe, which is going off actually to study a comet that it will rendezvous with in 20 2014, but it's out beyond Mars now. So what they can do is to look at this funny object from two different directions in space, and this has enabled them to map out the anatomy mm -hmm. of this tail and examine the object in much more detail. And what this study has shown is that this comet is actually an asteroid that has had another asteroid slam into it. So there was some kind of asteroidal collision in space, which has created this sea of debris, this tail. Mm. 
And the really interesting finding, though, is that when they actually looked at the, at the tail, sunlight is pushing the particles apart in the tail, small ones more than the big ones. And because they can work out how fast the sunlight is pushing the tail apart, you can work out, therefore, how long ago this collision occurred. And we tend to think of asteroidal collisions as something that happens millions of years ago. But in fact, this one only happened last year. Last it year. was the 10th of February 2009, plus or minus a week, they reckon. So the comet that wasn't, it was actually an asteroid that had an impact with another asteroid, but two wonderful pieces of research. The, it's just gobsmacking to think that we're in, a, in a, uh, an age yeah. now where we can do stellar forensics, if you like. That's interesting. Thank you very much, Chris. We'll chat again next week. Thank you, really. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye, and this will be a podcast. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.